fill us with the presence of your glorious light, especially the light of the saints, as we learn about them tonight, and the greatest of all saints, our Blessed Mother Mary. May their inspiration guide us. May we recognize them as our greatest friends and our greatest supporters to get us to heaven to be with your beloved Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Strengthen us tonight and fill us with greater faith, hope, and charity as we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so tonight we are going to learn about Mary and the communion of saints. This was supposed to be last week, but Father Clark and I switched, so we learned about the church, the ecclesiology, the study of the church, and this week will be a 1A, so to speak, of within the church, uh, our lives in respect to the communion of saints, what are the saints, who are the saints, and how Mary is the greatest all the saints. So I keep using that word. If you don't know exactly what it means, any ideas of what's an easy definition of what a saint is? Any ideas when you hear that word? Yeah. Yep. The, yep. Devoted to the Lord, a life of holiness to spread uh, the faith to others. Absolutely. But even so, it's absolutely that. But even greater uh, reality that all the saints possess. What? So all the saints are, yeah, so they also are a type of mediator, like for our sake, we can go to them who are closer to God than we are in a certain respect, because ultimately all the saints are in heaven. Like that's the one aspect that makes them unique from us is they're in heaven. We are not, we're striving to get to heaven, kind of like what Father Clark talked about last week with the. Church triumphant, those are all the saints, which include angels and physical persons who are in heaven until they gain their body back. Uh, church suffering, so those souls uh, in purgatory waiting to go to heaven, and then the church militant ourselves who are striving, who are fighting to uh, be in heaven with all the saints and God. So, Okay, so for an overview on the first page. Uh, that image I chose is one of my favorite depictions of Mary. It's her coronation as queen of heaven and earth and surrounding her and Jesus are all of the saints or a good chunk of the saints uh, in heaven. And the beautiful thing about the Mass is when uh, the Eucharistic prayer is happening all throughout the Mass, every single saint, angels, or the persons represented are at every single Mass all throughout the world. So we can't see them because they're spirit, but yet they are present and praying for us uh, each and every single Mass. So this is a beautiful depiction of what uh, then happens uh, at the Mass in this sense. So my plan tonight uh, is to review the four primary doctrines or dogmas regarding Mary and her special role in the life uh, of the Church and for us as Christians. We'll look at the communion of saints and their relationship among those on earth and pur purgatory in heaven, so I kind of already gave a little sneak preview of that. Then we'll look at the role of the saints in the process of canonization, what uh, does that look like? Canonization is just the steps of how to ultimately become a saint. 
And then we'll lastly look at the different kinds of reverence and honor or devotion and worship uh, given to God. What type of praise do we give to the saints? What type of praise do we give uh, to Mary? But before all of that, I added a little section here this year. I want to look at the differences, the compare and contrasting between theology, doctrine, and dogma. So looking at this briefly, it'll help us understand what we're talking about with church doctrine and dogma. What's the differences between them? How can it help us understand the importance or the weight behind uh, the statements being uh, defined by the church? So, so first, let's look at theology. The word theology comes from the Greek word of theos, God, and logos, the word for study. So simply put, theology is the study of God. With the Catholic qualifier, it's the study of God based on divine revelation, or the deposit of faith, which includes sacred scripture as well as capital T tradition of the church. The practices, the lifestyles of the church when it was first established by uh, Jesus and the early church. Uh, there are many ways to study theology. So if it is scripture and tradition, maybe it's one or the other, maybe it's both together. You can look at philosophy. Regardless if you're looking at good philosophy, mediocre philosophy, or just bad philosophy, you're still able to study God and understand God more fully. Or basically a via negativa approach of what is not consisting of God in a theology-based theology uh, mindset. You can look just simply at the natural created order. We could just simply look at the things in this room and come to a greater understanding of who God is. Things in existence, things that are created, are good. So then what is the source of all this being? We could go like, okay, this little stand right here, it's made of wood. Well, where'd the wood come from? It came from probably a tree or two. Well, where'd the trees come from? It came from this forest. Okay, well, where'd the forest come from? You can go back and back and back and back. Ultimately, you have to have that unmoved mover who is the creator of all things. So simply just looking at things in the world, we can come to a greater understanding of God using theology. So anyone can and should study theology. We're all made by God. We all should return to God. He is the source of all creation. We will return to God. So we should understand this creator who is a creator of love. So anyone who reasons about God based on divine revelation, or even if they're using any of these other uh, methods, they're doing theology, properly speaking. Doctrine. <clears throat> Doctrine comes from the Latin, doctrina, just simply means teaching in one sense. However, the word has expanded, grown, has a little bit more meaning, especially within the context of the church. So there's ideas developed by faithful Catholic theologian, or ideas developed by a faithful Catholic theologian, may represent Catholic theology, but this does not make these ideas Catholic doctrine per se. So what's needed then? We need the Catholic magisterium. So what is the magisterium? You may have heard this term before, but this is the living teaching office of the universal church, whose task is to give an authentic interpretation of the Word of God based on Scripture and capital T tradition. So what does Scripture say? What is the tradition? How can we apply this? How can we definitively state what Jesus has given us within the deposit of faith? So the best way to understand doctrine, then, is as follows. 
doctrine is, quote, a proposition of set propositions, or one idea or multiple ideas taught by the magisterium of the church to proclaim greater faith in the church that Jesus has established. Uh, dogma comes from the Greek meaning an opinion, but dogma over time also has grown. It means much more within the church too, especially we see the change for the better uh, in the post-1700s. So before you might see the word dogma, but it would really just at that time, pre-1700s uh, or early 1700s, like a theological opinion. So going back to theology, it had some weight. It was important depending on what the subject matter was about. But following the 1700s or late 1700s into the 1800s, when you use the word dogma, it grew to mean just more than a theological opinion. It held great weight because the magisterium, I was trying to make more clear uh, terms and definitions and uh, aspects of faith and morals that they wanted the believers of the church to understand and uh, hold reverence to. Uh, cardinal Avery Dulles, a very uh, good cardinal of the church. He was great in ecclesiology. A lot of the stuff Father Clark was talking about last week, he gives us the present meaning of dogma, or he states it in a very uh, good way. It says, quote, in current Catholic usage, the term dogma means a divinely revealed truth proclaimed as such by the infallible teaching authority of the church, and hence binding on all the faithful without exception, now and forever. So this definition clearly says it's more than a theological opinion. This is something that as Catholics, all of us should hold true of the one true faith that Jesus has established. And so when we speak of dogma, two primary uh, facts need to be followed. First are two factors. It must be divinely revealed, found within Scripture and tradition, within the deposit of faith, and it must be infallibly taught by the magisterium as divinely revealed. It can't just come from the holiest of popes, of cardinals, or bishops, or priests, as holy as they may be. No, it has to come from God himself. It must come from the mouth of Jesus in Scripture and tradition, and even if there are other sources and so forth, that we can definitively proclaim this, that uh, the Catholic Church should believe. <clears throat> now, what gets confusing then, sometimes uh, there can be doctrines that are dogmas, but not every dogmas are doctrines, so that kind of gets a little bit confusing. But doctrine can refer to things that may have been infallibly taught by the magisterium, which means, yeah, doctrine and dogma sometimes can be synonymous. <clears throat> But canon law tells us as well, no doctrine is understood as defined infallibly unless it's manifestly evident. So what does this mean? Well, all dogmas are infallibly defined, meaning that there can be doctrines that are not infallible and therefore are not dogmas. They're still very important and we still place great weight uh, with them, but dogmas are at the top of the hierarchy as uh, needing to be believed by all Catholics. <clears throat> All right, so I'll give you some examples. You have four primary categories then. So dogma has been infallibly taught by the church as something divinely revealed. An example, which we'll see here, Mary's Immaculate Conception, what we just celebrated uh, not too long ago on, uh, <coughs> what's today? Yeah, December 8th, there we go. So Mary's Immaculate Conception is one of the four primary Marian dogmas. An infallible doctrine has been infallibly taught by the church 
but has not yet been defined as a dogma, has not been divinely revealed by the church. So an example, holy orders being reserved for men. This is an infallible doctrine. It has not yet been raised to a dogma. Could it? Maybe, but uh, time will tell. A non-infallible doctrine is taught by the church, but has not been infallibly defined. So in this case, it'd be one example. Bishops and priests have different ranks within the sacraments of holy orders. And then you just have mere theological opinions. I say mere, I don't mean that as a negative uh, word, but it's not taught by the church explicitly, but it's permitted by the church. So the fires of purgatory, many people believe these fires to be Christ himself. Maybe it's a lesser fire that's not of Christ. So I can believe it's this. All of you could believe something different. We don't have to get in this huge uh, debate or argument or create a splinter faith. Or This is going to be the church that believes in the purgatory uh, flames are of Christ and different. We can have difference of opinion, so it's a theological opinion in that sense. It's not going to be dogma. Could it be raised to these ranks? Possibly, but <clears throat> does it need to be? So that's very quick, I know, but a brief kind of terms. What is dogma? Ultimately, we're going to be focusing on dogma, just those things that have been revealed divinely by the church, by God himself, in which the church proclaims that we as Catholics should believe. So, all right, we can get rid of that. That's all I need. So we'll go to the second page on our handout. So I did have a semi-typo. I did change it. I used to have four doctrines. The Blessed Virgin Mary, that was uh, not intentional, but these are, absolutely speaking, dogmas. They have all been proclaimed by the Church, by the Magisterium, by the Popes, in an ex-cathedra statement, which we'll see here in a little bit. So you have the Immaculate Conception. We believe the Church believes Mary was conceived without original sin. So it has nothing to do with Jesus, per se, but it was when Mary was conceived in the womb of her mother, St. Anne. She was preserved from the stain of original sin, all sin uh, itself. Uh, Mary, the mother of God. Mary is the mother of Jesus, the second divine person of the Trinity. We celebrate this on January 1st. Mary's assumption, which we profess at the end of Mary's earthly life, she was assumed body and soul into heaven. Uh, and then fourth Marian dogma is her perpetual virginity. All throughout her life, she remained a virgin. And all of these really play off of each other. Uh, so it, it makes sense that uh, all these are going to be proclaimed as dogma. We have this in uh, Scripture itself. We have it in tradition. So knowing uh, the early church, the apostles, so John taking Mary into his home, uh, following the command of Jesus, and then Following the early traditions of the church, we have writings from the early church fathers that further gives credence to uh, these uh, dogmatic beliefs of, of the church. So I'm going to briefly look at all four of these a little bit uh, more. I do want to spend uh, some time on uh, the saints as well. So depending on uh, time, I might not get to everything here, but you have it for your uh, perusal uh, so, with the Immaculate Conception, to become the mother of the Savior Mary was enriched by God with gifts appropriate to such a role. The angel Gabriel, at the moment of the Annunciation, salutes her as full of grace. So I just uh, talked about this in my homily on the 8th. 
Uh, Mary or Aquinas talks about Mary being or this term full of grace, like an angel who is greater. An angel is an archangel, even pure spirit. Any angel or rank of angel is greater than a human. They have infused perfect knowledge. We have limited knowledge, and yet an archangel is saying to a human person, "Hail, full of grace! You are greater than I," which is amazing. But Aquinas talks about being full of grace in three respects. Full of grace, which we normally talk about in the fullness of her soul. So she's preserved from all stain of original sin, sin in general, from all venial and mortal sin, because there's this fullness of grace. Now, it doesn't make her, uh, it's not like magic or anything like that. Her love and faithfulness and hope in her son and God's plan of salvation is so strong. Her charity is so strong that nothing is going to get in her way of committing a sin. So her faithfulness is what we uh, value, and uh, she's a model of faith for us in that way. Uh, you have fullness of grace in her body, which helps her, like I said, virtuously against any temptation to commit a venial or mortal sin, which then she is a model for us to strive for virtue and holiness and so forth, where you might have certain saints that are particularly strong against whether it's anger or pride or impurity or gluttony or whatever the vice may be, Mary is the embodiment of all virtue. So she's full of grace within her body. There's so much in her soul that it overflows into her body. There's so much grace in her body. Then the third and final point is, uh, by her grace, it leads to the salvation of her children, which make up the church. Which isn't saying that Mary is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. But Jesus and God's plan is uh, intended that Oftentimes we see statues of Mary with her hands wide open. One of the titles of Mary is the Mediatrix of all grace. It is by God's plan that we receive all grace from the cross, the blood and water that flows for our salvation, we receive from the hands of our Blessed Mother. From the command, behold your son, behold your mother. We become her spiritual children because she is the mother of the church. Just like a mother would embrace any of her uh, children, Spiritually, by the grace Jesus offers us as the Redeemer of the world, she is then used as the mediatrix of grace to, for us to receive that grace uh, from his passion and death and resurrection. So in those three ways, Mary is uh, full of grace. So it's really just like this, think of Niagara Falls to the nth degree, and then it's just like this cascading fountain that continues to give and give and give and give all through Mary. So in order for Mary then to be able to give the free assent of her faith, to the announcement of her vocation, it was absolutely necessary that she be wholly born by God's grace, the singular grace to be this perfect, pure vessel to be uh, the bearer of uh, Jesus, the Savior of the world. The splendor of an entirely unique holiness by which Mary is enriched from the first instant of her conception comes wholly from Christ. So Mary's faith is still tested. We don't know exactly how it's tested, but by God's plan of salvation, uh, he enriches her with this fullness of grace to make her the uh, bearer of the Christ child. And by this, Mary is redeemed in a more exalted fashion by reason of the merits of her son. The Father blessed Mary more than any other created person in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens and chose her in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Next, we have Mary, Mother of God. So focusing on 
we can focus on her divine motherhood, but also the motherhood that she gives to us uh, within the church. But her divine motherhood, we hear this right in the beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, very early on. Mary is called the mother of Jesus in the gospels, or in the visitation, the mother of my Lord, in which John the Baptist leapt in Elizabeth's womb. Uh, in the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD, there was a heresy, Nestorius. He created a heresy, or based on his beliefs and understanding, you don't really just wake up one day and say, I'm going to create a heresy. But just in his faith, he was seeking God. He unfortunately went astray a little bit, and by his beliefs, a heresy was created. He regarded Christ as a human person, like the Superman human person, joined to the divine person of God's Son. But St. Cyril of Alexandria, Alexandria responds to that, saying this cannot be true. He says, For we do not say that the nature of the Word was changed and made flesh, nor yet that it was changed into the whole body, or in, excuse me, into the whole man, composed of soul and body. But rather we say that the Word, in an ineffable and inconceivable manner, having hypostatically united to himself flesh, animated by a rational soul, became man and was called the Son of Man. So that's another dogmatic truth. We believe in the hypostatic union. We'll look more at that when we talk about the Eucharist. But in every single Mass, every single Eucharistic celebration, when Jesus becomes present by the words of consecration, we believe that Jesus in the Eucharist is fully present, uh, fully man, fully God. So two natures. Man and God in one person, Jesus Christ. And within the Eucharist, because he says, this is my body, this is my blood, he is present, not in bread and wine, but actually his body and blood and his two natures, one person. So he doesn't just attach himself to this human nature or anything. He actually is human. He actually is God. Uh, next we have, or also within... Uh, Mary being the mother of God, the Greek term, the Theotokos, the God-bearer. For it was no ordinary man who was first born of the Holy Virgin, and upon whom the word afterwards descended. But being united from the womb itself, he is said to have undergone fleshly birth, claiming as his own the birth of his own flesh. Thus the Holy Fathers did not hesitate to speak of the Holy Virgin as the mother of God. So it's really important that Mary gives physical birth. If we think of all children, all persons who have been brought into this life because of their mother, because of the goodness of marriage and having families and so forth, Mary is that most graced, pure vessel. She gives birth to the perfect son, this pure son, and she is that guardian, she is that protector, she is that lover of all life and is that intercessor for all women, for all mothers, for uh, childbirth, and the difficulties and the joys and everything in between. She is a constant intercessor for the goodness of life. So I think, too, it's just maybe in Mary's own way, if Jesus is like us in all things but sin, Mary is also sinless. So she is that motherly, maternal protector uh, for mothers, for us as her spiritual children, for the sake of the family, and so forth. This God-bearer. In our own families, uh, we too, with her help, uh, can be God-bearers. Next, we'll look at uh, her perpetual virginity. 
Mary's virginity from the first formulations of her faith, the church has confessed that Jesus was conceived solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. This is what uh, Gabriel tells her. How can this be since I have no relations with a man? Uh, the Holy Spirit will uh, overshadow you. You will be the spouse uh, of the Holy Spirit. And in this overshadowing, you will bear a son. His name will be Emmanuel. His name will be Jesus. So the church affirms the bodily or the corporal aspect of Mary's conception. So Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit without any human seed. The church fathers see in Mary's virginal conception the sign that it truly was the Son of, son of God. As I said, Mary's virginal conception then fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So yes, Mary is the earthly spouse of St. Joseph, Joseph being the foster father of Jesus. But in the order of grace, Mary is the spouse of the Holy Spirit. And all four gospel accounts understand Mary's virginal conception. They all agree upon this point. So using that scripture... Uh, and tradition account to make a dogmatic statement as a divine work that surpasses all human understanding and all possibility. This must be uh, a work of grace, which it is. The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. So in Lumen Gentium, Father Clark mentioned this Vatican II document uh, last week great document in general, uh, and it also tells us Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but rather it sanctified it. Sanctified it because it's not of human seed, but rather the seed of the Holy Spirit. So it sanctifies, it gives glory to Mary's body. He uses the terms brothers and sisters a few times in the Gospels. Uh, no, Jesus does not have physical brothers and sisters and so forth. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that, uh, but that can be used as an argument of, well, was Mary really a virgin? Uh, and so forth. But brothers and sisters has a number of uh, meanings that we can get into later. So with Mary's assumption, I'll focus on letter A, and then I'll probably uh, move on from that. But So we see this connection. We see that in order to uh, have her glorious assumption, body and soul into heaven, she needed to have this singular grace. What's a singular grace? Be free from all sin so that she can bear the Christ child to be the Savior. And by her faithfulness, this perfect faith, this sinless faith, she's assumed by her uh, faithfulness, she is rewarded most gratefully. And because of her great faith, she becomes the mother of the church for our sake. So in view of the church and all the communion of saints, uh, you have what's called the proper of saints. So when it's, let's say, it's the Immaculate Conception, uh, you have a hierarchy of the saints. So Mary being at the top, she comes first. It's, uh, <clears throat> what's it called? Uh, the proper uh, of Mary. Then you have right underneath that, so dedication of a church is actually right below that, which we'll be able to uh, experience here in a few more months. Uh, after that, you have the common of apostles. You have the common of martyrs or several martyrs or one martyr and pastors, and it keeps going down and down and down. So there's this hierarchy. So even there, it's showing different type of worship or different type of praise that is uh, of the saints. So in A, B, and C, we define what type of praise or what type of honor or what type of worship is given to uh, such persons. <clears throat> 
So first and foremost, you have uh, Latria. Maybe I did this backwards, but Latria is the most perfect form of praise. When we talk about worship, we're talking about Latria. Latria is reserved for God and God alone. Latria is not meant for Mary. Latria is not meant for your confirmation saints, your guardian angel, or any of those types of persons. Latria is simply adoring God for who He is. Because no other person is God, we recognize God as God. So it's worship and adoration. Latria is expressed by all solely to the Trinity. If expressed to anyone or anything else, this would be an offense to God against the first commandment. You shall have no other gods beside me. Or if I want to worship nature as nature, because you know, mass and church, it's all great, Father, but I really find my inner peace and solace when I go hiking in the mountains. Well, that's great, but the mountains God created, and the mountains aren't God. God is God. You can't receive your salvation from the beautiful uh, mountains. But with religion, with God, and recognizing God for who He is, as the source and creator of all good things, He <clears throat> is love Himself. Latria is meant for God. It's not meant for the mountains or whoever, a person. Uh, we have Dulia. So Dulia is an honor, or it's a type of devotion or respect given to persons, or it's given to saints. Dulia can be given to maybe people we look up to in a lesser sense, maybe, if they're kind of like what you were talking about, the people that are striving for holiness, that are wanting to proclaim the faith to anyone and everyone they meet. They're uh, virtuous. We should respect those types of persons. They may not be in heaven yet, so we're not going to proclaim them a saint or <clears throat> anything like that, but this is still essentially different from Latria. They're not God. They're not in heaven as a saint. And yet, they live a life of holiness. I want to be like them because they're striving for something greater than yourself or ourselves. So praise, yes. But not adoration, not, not Latria. And then you have a subset or a different species of Dulia. It's called Hyperdulia. So an increased level of Dulia or praise. Hyperdulia is the unique praise and devotion given to Mary as our Blessed Mother because of her unique role in salvation history. It's higher than Dulia, and yet it's still essentially different from Latria. So never squashing the belief that why do you Catholics uh, pray to Mary as God, or why do you make Mary God, or however that question is worded. It may seem like that, but it's simply just honoring her for her sinlessness her beauty and body and soul, recognizing her as our spiritual mother. Like It may seem weird, but our spiritual Mary as our spiritual mother, we are closer to her than our own physical mother. And it's not just me saying that. Many church doc or doctors of the church, great saints who have gone before us, have made that uh, unanimous claim that Mary is more our mother than our physical mother. And it's not even a slight, because all of us, as children of Mary, we all go back to Mary the sake of her son. It doesn't take away of the love and uh, giving birth and the, the, the tears of sorrow, the tears of joy, everything in between. Like There's nothing that can take away from that beautiful vocation. And yet Mary loves us so much that she's going to do everything in her power to bring us and unite us to her son so that we can be part of the universal family, the heavenly family for all eternity. 
So by the order of grace, Mary is more our mother than our own physical mothers. So we should give honor to Mary for all the many blessings that she has bestowed upon us. We should honor her for her faithfulness. When we are weak in our own faith, we go to Mary, she who is most courageous and stands firmly at the cross, watching her beloved Jesus die. And it's not, oh, poor Jesus, tears of sorrow, but rather she's looking upon us. It's because of our sinfulness that Jesus is on the cross in the first place, and she wants us to all be one, just as Jesus wants us to be one with the Father. Like that's, in a nutshell, why we praise Mary, not as God, but as this most beautiful and perfect soul. So now looking at Mary as the supreme saint, we have the communion of saints, all other persons who are in heaven. So what do the saints do for us? First and foremost, they provide us friendship. Could we get to heaven, attain heaven without friendship? Absolutely. But it would make life on earth just shy of being absolutely miserable. God recognizes we're made for communion. We're not made for isolation. And our families, our friends, our co-workers, whoever, having relationships, having friendships is a very good thing. Not just uh, physically, but spiritually, we should have friendships. So the saints, those who are the perfect followers of God, offer us their friendship. So our guardian angel, all of us when we are born, when we are conceived, God gives each and every single one of us a guardian angel. So right away, right from the moment of our conception, God gives us a spiritual friend. Our guardian angel knows us better than we know ourselves, who desires to protect us, to uh, lead us to the glory of heaven. In heaven, they will offer a supernatural love and signs of their friendship. They also will do that, currently do that uh, in our lives. Our guardian angel, first and foremost, again, uh, any saint that we have a particular devotion to, when we ask for their prayers and protection and support, asking by their intercession to have them pray to God on our behalf, they who are in heaven, they're closer to God, they're able to pray more perfectly than we're able to pray in our concupiscence and our uh, temptations and crosses that we bear, they're with God so they know how to pray for us. They offer us signs of their friendship. Uh, sometimes saints choose us. Uh, they choose us or sometimes uh, we choose them. It's a little typo. Uh, friendship is rooted in relationship. So I'm, I think I may have told this to some of you before, but like for my confirmation, it was like a week before and my dad asked me, so do you know who your confirmation saint is? I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And in my mind, I was like, I uh, kind of know, but not really. And I was just kind of like going through a list of saints real quick. And I just all of a sudden came to clarity and said, St. Michael. You sure you want to go St. Michael? Yep, St. Michael, the archangel. That's who I want. And I can't even tell you how many times St. Michael, just my relationship with St. Michael, my friendship with him has just grown so strong. I can totally feel his presence in my life in more ways than I can count. So even though I was kind of this reckless, probably didn't pay near as much attention as I should have in my confirmation class, I was like, okay, hurry up and pick a saint. God knew exactly the saint that I needed, and now St. Michael is one of my closest uh, confidants. He always is protecting me. And yeah, it's just uh, if my computer was working, you would see it's the background of my desktop. It's Michael winning the final victory and placing the thrusting the spear into the head of Satan himself. Uh, by their example, 
the saints by their uh, holy example. Again, like Florence was talking about. They provide us an example of holiness of life. They give us a blueprint to holiness, specifically unique sanctity. It's very difficult to live a life of holiness. We know this, and yet we can't just simply cut corners and, well, I love you, God, but I'm just going to like kind of do my own thing, and I'll sort of sacrifice sometimes, and I'll sort of pray sometimes, but the lives of the saints, yeah, that's a little too much for me. Well, we can't have our cake and eat it, too. They inspire us. This is like St. Ignatius of Loyola, this great military soldier, canon, destroys his uh, leg. He's in the hospital for a long time. Like, give me something to read. If, if originally, it's just books of the world. Eventually, they sneak in books on the lives of the saints, and he's totally addicted. He's hooked on this, and he changes his life for the better and becomes one of the greatest uh, saints in the history of the church. He was inspired. This blueprint to holiness, he's like, they are happy, I'm not. Why are they happy? And he devoted himself to holiness. So by their holiness of life, we too can live a life of holiness. By the sacraments, by the grace that the sacraments offer us, we can be made a new creation as they were made a new creation. And they're just similar to us in so many ways. Like the apostles, the apostles are more like us than not like us. They're screw-ups just as like we're screw-ups. They have moments of uh, victories and grace, just like the apostles had moments of victory and grace. So just because they're the first apostles and people sent out in the church, we're called to be sent out just like the apostles were too. So don't think we're totally unlike the apostles. All the apostles being saints, we can live lives very, very similar to them in our unique, uh, own particular unique call to holiness and sanctity. All of us are called to be saints in our own respect. Uh, see. The saints intercede for us. They pray to God on our behalf. They know our souls. They know what we need. And when we go to them, they can go straight to God for us. Can we go directly to God? Yes. And there are absolutely times that we should just go straight to God. But when we have people in our own professions or vocations, John Vianney, the patron saint of uh, parish priests, John Vianney, also one of my favorite saints, asking for his intercession in a difficult pastoral situation or a graceful pastoral situation or the blessings of the priesthood, I can thank God in moment of prayer and I can thank John Vianney for his intercession on my behalf. It's a both and. I'm not just going to simply go to John Vianney and more or less make him God and say, if it wasn't for you, I don't know where I'd be. Well, both can be true. It's ultimately God who's working his grace in my life. But as a parish priest, a patron saint of confessors too, asking for uh, his intercession when I'm in the confessional so that the devil doesn't attack me or do anything uh, that prevents souls from coming uh, to encounter Christ. John Vianney is a great intercessor on that behalf or for that sake. And then, yeah, all saints, they're specifically a patron saint of certain respects, St. Cecilia, patron saint of music, uh, St. <clears throat> Isidore, coming from a farm. He's one of my personal favorite saints, patron saint of all farmers. Uh, so whatever your vocation is, or if you have a St. Peregrine, patron saint of uh, those with cancer, so oftentimes uh, his uh, novena or prayers, asking for his intercessions uh, is a good thing to do because one of his miracles was uh, healing a man who had cancer. The saints teach us, so letter D, by their lives they instruct us, by their words they instruct us, so the Quotes of the Church Fathers, which we saw earlier, just 
uh, any of their works, uh, their writings, we can use them to teach us on aspects of the faith by their holy example. So by their lives, they teach us in more ways than one. And they inspire us. They inspire us to follow Christ more fully in their heroic struggles. How did they carry their cross? We can, in the reading about their lives, we can see how they valiantly carried their cross or how they even failed. So Peter, he denied Christ three times and yet he repented. He became stronger because of it and became one of the greatest uh, saints of all time, the first pope. If it wasn't for him denying Christ three times, who knows uh, the victories he would achieve by the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of us having physical and spiritual trials, we can look to the lives of the saints to inspire us, to strengthen us, to get up once more and carry our cross courageously. Well, with that, there's the communion of the saints. So all members of the communion of saints share and reciprocate spiritual gifts. It's the bond of charity that unites all Christians and all their spiritual gifts together in perfect communion. So Aquinas talks about this too, more or less. In the communion of saints, which saints are more or less close to Jesus? Well, Mary, first and foremost, as we've talked about. Joseph is going to be uh, close up there. But then after that, we can have our educated guesses. I wouldn't necessarily call them theological opinions, but more or less, the more virtue attained on earth, the closer these saints are going to be uh, to the heart of Jesus and to God in the beatific vision. So how that all works out, I don't know. We'll see that, God willing, one day in heaven. Um, but based on the amount of virtue attained and achieved in this life, because with virtue you're able to love God more perfectly, they will be closer to God in heaven. All the saints are still in heaven. It's not, oh, well, you're this low in heaven and you're this high. Like They're still in heaven gloriously viewing our Lord in the beatific vision or God in the beatific vision. Um, but we can always love God more and more and more because he is infinite. Uh, all in the church, so letter B, next page, all in the church form one family in Christ, the cornerstone as well as they share the full grace of Christ, but in different ways based on their lives. So we talked about those three primary groups already, the church triumphant, suffering, and the church militant. Uh, the, as the church militant, we can pray to the saints in heaven, so ask for their intercession for us. We can pray for the souls in purgatory. We can pray for one another. Now, the souls in purgatory, the church suffering, they can pray for us is the battlefield when we, hopefully through faith, uh, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, faith and works, all these types of things, we're working out with the grace of Christ our own salvation. It's not saying we're our own Savior. We need grace, a lot of grace. But once we die, we lose our body. We can no longer pray for ourselves. So that's one thing, which is why we pray so often for the souls in purgatory, for that very fact. They can't pray for themselves, but we desire all of souls to sooner rather than later enter the glory of heaven so that they no longer suffer and they can be uh, with uh, God and all the saints. Instead of going through that, I think the video probably does a better job, so I can send that to you right now. It is, it's like a five-minute video. It explains the process of canonization. So. That would take us right right to the end, and then we can do All right. Close with a prayer.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to love. Help us to have great faith, extraordinary faith, as all of the saints so powerfully profess. We turn our eyes especially to the greatest of all saints, our Blessed Mother Mary. As her spiritual children, may she place us under her mantle. May she pray that we have the courage to face uh, all battles with constancy of faith, hope, and love, that we may stand courageously as she stood most courageously at the foot of the cross. May we never be afraid of the cross, but rather through the cross, may we receive the greatest gift of all eternal life through the resurrection. Send your Holy Spirit down upon us. Send our guardian angels to protect us. May all of the saints in their wisdom lead us to the infinite depth and wisdom of God. We ask this in your name. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And through the intercession of St. Peter and all the saints, may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, come down upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. There are still some lights on. A lot of the scaffolding has been taken down, so I think you can go to the windows and peek your head in, and you can see the murals and the ceiling uh, of the church right now, if you'd like. So. A lot of the scaffolding has been taken down, so I think you can go to the windows and peek your head in, and you can see the murals and the ceiling uh, of the church right now, if you'd like. So, Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska on Apple iTunes or on Podbean and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.